Let's, uh, let's remain standing <coughs> for the reading of God's holy word. Uh, first of all, <coughs> a big thank you to Josie for rescuing our technology this morning. We really appreciate that. If you don't know Josie, you ought to know Josie. She's, uh, she's actually my cousin. She's one of the South Carolina cousins uh, who lives in Comer now. Uh, she, she apparently got saved and moved to Georgia. Uh, so... Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. (coughs) A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war. And a time for peace. (coughs) Sorry, y'all. What gain has the worker, thank you, Luke, from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. Thank you. So we're working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And over the past few weeks, we've talked about a large overarching theme in this book. Uh, If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks... Uh, I do want you to know that we have some Ecclesiastes scripture journals back in the Eberhardt window in the back that Jane ordered for us that are a gift from our church uh, to you. And if you would like one, uh, you can just raise your hand and and, uh, Ray would be glad to bring you one. Uh, But it's a nice little journal that you can use to take notes during this series uh, or for your private devotion time. Uh, there's, There's a large theme In the book of Ecclesiastes, a point that Solomon wants to get across so that we understand that life is short and we should spend our time wisely, (coughs) enjoying life and focusing on God in every aspect of life. The big theme of this book... (coughs) Is this. Don't just think in the now, because now will be gone soon. Focus on forever, because forever is what really matters. 
Remember God in everything you do. Enjoy life and enjoy God. Again, don't just think in the now, because now will be gone soon. Focus on forever, because that's what really matters. Remember God in everything you do. Enjoy life and enjoy God. What I'm finding as I study and I walk through this book myself is that there are many themes that pop up as you go. It's sort of like pieces of a puzzle that make a picture complete uh, and, and forms that big theme. So today's text is a really famous and popular text. Uh, many of you could probably recite that text by heart. Maybe not because you devoted yourself to memorizing Scripture, but because you recognize it uh, from the song by the birds in the 1960s, to everything there's a season, turn, 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 right? Um, there is a theme here, though. Sidney uh, Gradenis wrote that the central thought of this passage of Scripture is the sovereign God set the times forever so that people will stand in awe of Him. But I like the way a more modern writer, Dustin Binge, frames the meaning of today's text. He wrote this. He said, this is the meaning, the theme in today's text. The world is not falling apart. It's falling together into God's sovereign plan. The point is that God is sovereign and he's in control of everything that happens in our lives. All the good, all the bad, all the joy, all the pain, all the good times, all the tragedies. No matter what circumstance the moment finds you in, God is in control of that moment. So if you want to condense that down, the theme of today's uh, uh, text is God is in control. This passage is ultimately concerned with time. In fact, the word time is used 30 times in the first eight verses of this passage. The old saying goes, timing is everything. And timing does matter in every aspect of life, whether it's work or medical treatment or swinging a baseball bat. Timing matters. Uh, when we talk, our conversations usually begin to center on time. Oh man, we just stay so busy. We'd love to get by and see y'all. We just don't have time. We just don't have time. Uh, uh, there's just not enough hours in the day. There's not enough time to do this or to do that. I joke, I wish he was here today, I joke with Casey Cooper, he may still be coming because he's on Cooper time. Uh, uh, I joke with Casey all the time that he operates in a completely different time zone than the rest of the world. Uh, he's on Cooper time, so he runs about 25 minutes behind everybody else. Uh, but in his world, he's always right on time, right? Uh, timing matters. There's good times to make a joke and there's bad times to make a joke. There's a good time to ask for a raise at work, and there's a bad time to ask for a raise at work. If you grill a hamburger for too long, it can be overcooked or even burnt. But if you take it off the grill too soon, it might still be raw inside. So what today's text is doing is it's drawing us into a deeper awareness of the weight and the meaning of time. Uh, we have 15 verses to cover today, and what we're going to see in these 15 verses Solomon teaches us four truths about time. In the first eight verses, he teaches us this truth number one, that we should expect things to change in time. 
Solomon starts verse 1 with an explanation of what the text is going to be about. He says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he begins naming events that happen in our lives. Things that occur in our time we spend under heaven in this world. Solomon is telling us that there's a reason for everything that happens in our lives. The uh, New American Standard Bible phrases verse 1 like this. It says, there's an appointed time for everything. So these things that happen in our lives aren't by chance or fate or karma or dumb luck or just random occurrences. They're appointed by God. God has a reason, a purpose, and a plan for everything that happens in your life. So that's verse 1. Then Solomon spends the next seven verses in something of a poem. And in it, there's 14 sets of contrasting statements. 14 negative statements and 14 positive statements. He starts with, there's a time to be born and a time to die. God has planned your birthday and your funeral. He knows when they will occur, and He has known since before time began. There are no premature births in God's plan. There is no situation where someone just died too young in God's plan. There are no surprises with God. He is sovereign. No one can take your life before the day God ordained that you would die. This is true of people, and it's even true of plants. Solomon wrote, there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. I saw a statistic not long ago that said that someone dies every eight seconds and someone is born every three seconds. It's how life works, even with plants and flowers and trees. There are seasons to plant and seasons to harvest. God has set these boundaries on time and these seasons come and go quickly. For every living thing. Then Solomon moves on to verse 3 and says there are times for activities that destroy and times for activities that build. He says there's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. When Solomon says there's an appropriate time to kill, he's not talking about committing murder, okay? In Exodus 20, 13, God said you shall not kill. And in the Hebrew, that explicitly means you shall do no murder. What Solomon is referring to involves uh, wartime or a righteous defense of the innocent. Human life is of great value to God. In fact, Genesis 9, 6 says that man is made in the image of God. So there's a time that's appropriate to kill, but there's also a time to heal. Life matters to God. So where there's woundedness, God appoints healing, if that is what he has planned according to his will. The second half of the verse says there's a time to break down and a time to build up. And it's also written in the context of human life. There's a time for life to end and a time for life to begin and mature and grow. In verse 4, Solomon moves from talking about human activities to talking about human emotions. He says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Both sorrow and joy are natural parts of life. There's an old Arab proverb that says, if all our days were sunshine, 
life would be a desert. If we don't experience sorrow, we won't know what joy really is. So we all experience happy times and painful times in life. One moment you're on the mountaintop, the next you're in the valley. But no matter what emotion you're experiencing in a moment, we have to remember that God is sovereign over that moment, even moments of pain and suffering. I think that's an important point for us to make here because a lot of times, even people who present as being mature believers seem to have this question. If God is so good, why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there cancer and war and child abuse and political fighting and divorce and murder? God, why do I hurt? God is sovereign. Not just over sunny days when everything feels good. But he's also sovereign over the storms we encounter. He's sovereign over life. And he's sovereign over our greatest fear and our greatest pain. Death. He said, it says in Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. First Samuel twelve six says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. But not just that, not just life and death. God is sovereign over disabilities and debilitating illnesses. It says in Exodus four eleven, Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, deaf, seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God was sovereign when the planes flew into the Twin Towers on 9-11 and when Hurricane Katrina destroyed people's homes and lives in New Orleans. Uh, Amos 3.6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God is sovereign and in control of your good days and on the days when the worst case scenario hits and the world seems to be falling apart. Isaiah 45.7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He is sovereign over our biggest wins in life and even our greatest losses in life. Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So it's our responsibility as believers to remember God and worship God even in difficult times, to find joy in the midst of our sickness, to find dependency on Him in the midst of our failing health, to be close to God in our ever-changing circumstances. If we only thank God in seasons of great health and prosperity, you will not be thanking God very much because those seasons ebb and flow like the tide. The point is this. God is sovereign and in control of both our good times and our bad times. Verse 5 is a verse that sounds almost strange. It says, There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time from, to refrain from embracing. Solomon isn't talking about throwing rocks at each other or even clearing stones out of a field. The verse is talking about physical intimacy between a man and a woman. 
Throwing stones was a Hebrew term for that kind of intimacy, and gathering stones meant to refrain from that kind of activity. There's a time to embrace and a time to stop embracing. Now, Kyle, don't go home right after church, and if Amber asks what you want for lunch, say, don't say, I'm not really hungry, we all just throw stones, okay? Uh, I, I'm not going to say anything else about that because I value my job. So Solomon has talked about being born, he's talked about dying, and he's talked about what happens in between. Activities we participate in and emotions we experience. And now he's going to spend the next verse talking about how we relate to the things we possess. He says there's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Uh, I'll talk about Brittany today because she's not here and I won't get in trouble unless she listens to this later and I doubt she will. Uh, She's got a serious issue with two things. Bags, not like purses, but like bags you carry things in, like beach bags and backpacks and bags like that. And and water bottles. I I swear, we have more fake Walmart Yeti uh, off-brand water bottles than any other family on earth. Some of them don't have lids anymore, or the lids are broken and they leak. But we don't throw those water bottles away because we can go to the store and buy new tops for them. But we don't do that. We just keep the broken ones. So Solomon is giving us permission here in the name of the Lord to keep some stuff and to throw some stuff away. The thought here is about the temporary nature of our possessions. The things you never really liked when you die, those are the things your kids are going to want. But the things that you had to keep, all those water bottles, they're going to take those things straight to Goodwill or throw them in the trash. We buy clothes, they wear out. And then we buy more clothes. We buy cars, and they stop running. So we buy another car. Solomon is telling us that possessions are temporary things. Then in verse 7, Solomon writes that there is a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Solomon is specifically talking about mourning here. In the Old Testament, when people mourned the death of a loved one, they would tear their clothing and enter a prescribed period of silence. And when the time of mourning was over, they would have conversation again. He's also uh, trying to get us to understand that there's an appropriate time to talk, an appropriate time to say nothing. There's an old saying, better to be a fool and keep silent than to open one's mouth and prove it. Uh, There was a time when I preached a sermon that I really thought was one of the best I'd ever preached. uh, One that I'd really enjoyed studying for and writing. And after church that Sunday, the first person that walked up to me complained that we didn't do any songs they liked that Sunday. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Now, there were probably five or six others who came to me and they complimented my sermon. Uh, But the way my brain is wired, I could have had a million people come up to me and tell me they liked the sermon. And all I would have thought about was what that one person said. Because that's just the way I am. Shame on me. When you poured your heart into something, words matter. 
When you're tired, words matter. When you're sick or depressed, words matter. Timing is everything, right? And timing matters when it comes to our words. So Solomon's talked about being born and dying and what happens in between. He's talked about activities we participate in, emotions we experience, intimacy, mourning, how we use our words. And now he comes to the end of the poetry segment of today's text. Verse 8, he says, There's a time for love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, the idea is that God is a God of love. That's the prevailing idea in the world. And God loves everybody and he is incapable of any type of hate. And we know that Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We also know that John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 4.16, God is love. But Solomon says there's also a proper time and place for hate. Even God hates. God hates sin. Proverbs chapter 6 says that God despises haughty eyes, pride. He despises a lying tongue. He despises hands that shed innocent blood. He despises hearts that make wicked plans. He despises feet that run to do evil. He despises false witnesses, people who tell untruths about other. He despises gossips and troublemakers. Psalm 11.5 says the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. It's talking about God. Proverbs 8.13, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God hates these things because God is holy. He will not tolerate any sin in His presence. Isaiah 59.2 says that your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and God. Our sin is what divides us from God, what separates the creature from the Creator. God is holy and we are not. Jesus, God in the flesh, hated sin. He hated what it was doing to His chosen people. He hated how it destroyed their lives and separated them from Him in eternity. But the good news of the Gospels in Romans 5, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says we were enemies when we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. We receive reconciliation through Jesus Christ. If God is so in love with me and the filth of my depravity, then I have no need for reconciliation. I'm not his enemy. I'm not a sinner. And that's the prevailing, persistent idea in this world today, that there is no such thing as sin. 
There's no such thing. Nothing is off limits anymore. There's no such thing as sin. God loves us no matter what. Because I'm great. There's nothing wretched about me. Jesus is my homeboy. and He laughs and he winks at my sin. Or he's a benevolent, senile grandfather who pretends he doesn't know that I'm a sinner. No, no. Scripture says I was an enemy of God. I was in conflict with God and he was in conflict with me. But Jesus died on the cross for me and he reconciled me to God. He made peace between me and God. Jesus didn't die for me because I was good. He died for me because he is good. Jesus didn't die for me because I was so lovable. He died for me because he is love. So it's okay. I'm giving you permission right now to hate sin. I didn't say it's okay for you to hate people. But it's okay for you to hate sin. It is okay to hate addiction. It is okay to hate pornography. It is okay to hate abortion. It is okay to hate things that destroy families and wreck lives. It is okay to hate any brand of sin because it separates men from God. But it's love that reconciles men to each other and to God. A while back, I saw someone I know, someone that I care very deeply for, that put a post on her social media that said that she had come to grips with her own sexuality. That she had taken a look in the mirror and had a conversation with God. And that God was happy with her. And God affirmed her feelings. Listen, if you're looking in the mirror having a conversation about your sin, you ain't talking to God. You're talking to yourself. And your sin will make you feel good. It will. But God hates sin. And it takes the blood of Christ to make peace between you and God. The final line of verse 8, it says, A time for war and a time for peace. I don't like war, but God says there is a time for war. Exodus 15.3 says that the Lord is a warrior. Jeremiah 20.11 says God is a dread warrior. Isaiah 42.13 says the Lord is a man of war. Revelation 19 describes Jesus when he returns this way. It says he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. God is a warrior. 
And war is part of the Bible. But timing is everything. There is a time when war is appropriate. And there will always be times for war. And until Christ returns, we won't know everlasting peace. So that's truth number one. These next three go a little quicker, I promise you. Truth number two. We see it in verses 9 through 11. God has a plan for your time. Solomon writes, What gain has the worker from his toil? Why should I get up and go to work every day when I'm not going to live forever? Why get married if we're going to fight all the time? Why have kids if they're going to be bad and cause stress in my life? Why work and work to get ahead when the bills are never going to stop coming? Solomon says in verses 10 and 11, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Back in Ecclesiastes 3.1, the beginning of today's text, Solomon said, for everything there is season. Uh, There is a season. Now he says he has made everything beautiful in its time. God has given us work to be busy with. Work to occupy ourselves and support ourselves. Times to weep and laugh. Times to mourn and dance. Times to embrace and stop embracing. Times to talk and times to keep silent. Times to love and times to hate. Times for war and times for peace. And it's all a gift that God has given us. He has made it beautiful, perfect in its time. And it's all a part of His beautiful, perfect, sovereign will. There are no surprises with God. We tend to question God's motives. Why was I born like this? Why did my parent hurt me the way they did? Why did the person I love reject me the way they did? Why is God blessing that person and not me? But the problem is we have small vision. Kevin Creel wrote that our problem is that we get caught up in the wrapping, but God focuses on the gift. We see what's happening right now. God sees the eternal. Creole wrote, He makes everything beautiful in its time, including your loss, including your hospital experience, your failures, your brokenness, your battles, your fragmented dreams, your lost romance, your heartbreak, your illness. Yes, even your terminal illness. Whatever you're going through, He makes it beautiful in its time. Without God... Life is purposeless and profitless, miserable and meaningless. With God, it will ultimately make sense. Solomon also says that God has set eternity into the hearts of man, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's a longing inside of us for that eternal perspective, and we can't wrap our brains around it. We, we ask questions like, why am I here? Why is this happening to me? What is the meaning of life? But the world that is coming after this life is a lot more significant than what goes on in this life. God created us with a longing for eternal things, but the depth of what he has to offer isn't fully revealed to us yet. So we try other things to see if they satisfy. Every one of us has a built-in desire for God. But most people ignore it. And they try to satisfy their hunger with something else. 
C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. There's a hole inside of all of us, a hunger inside of all of us. But let me tell you, what we do is we eat at the wrong tables all the time. We order off the wrong menu. The cure for that hunger in your heart is Jesus. What were you made for? What were you made for? What's the one thing you're good at that you believe you were made to do? That verse in Ecclesiastes says he's put eternity in your heart, a longing for something beyond achievement in sports or business or making good grades or making money or having a nice car or a perfect mate or a perfect body. For all those questions, the only answer that will satisfy the void inside of us is Jesus. Jesus is what you need if you want real satisfaction. Jesus said in John 6, verses 35 and 51, He said, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. God is sovereign. He is in control. And all of life, every season, is perfectly and beautifully ordered by Him. So there's purpose and meaning behind every season of your life. And since all has been predetermined by God, there's purpose and meaning even in your pain, even in your joy. And Jesus is the one thing that can satisfy. Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find peace in you. Pascal said, The truth is we have an eternal itch. We all long to know the eternal significance of what we do. And the Bible says this can only be found in Christ. So we should expect change in time. And God has a plan for our time. And truth number three is this. You must do all you can to enjoy your time. Verses 12 and 13 of today's text. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Life can be stressful and even disappointing. We have deadlines and pressure and problems to deal with every day of our lives. And Solomon is telling us that no matter what kind of season you're in, enjoy the life you're experiencing by remembering that it's all a gift from God. God is in every millisecond of your life. Now, I'm not saying you should live like a heathen, but eat ice cream and watch movies and laugh with the people that you love. Play with a kid, and if you don't have a kid of your own, come and play with the 80 we have here on Wednesday nights. They'll be back in August. Make plans now. Take somebody out to lunch. Sit on the porch and watch lightning bugs. 
You don't have to be rich and spend lavishly to enjoy the times, but make the most of your time because it's a gift from God. Four truths. One, you should expect change in time. Two, God has a plan for your time. Three, you must do all you can to enjoy your time. Here's the last one. Truth number four, fear God all the time. All the time. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Everything God does in your life is permanent and complete and reveals to us the superlative nature of God. The idea of fearing God appears over a hundred times in the Bible. This doesn't mean that we should be afraid of God the way I'm afraid of snakes or the way a young person fears growing old. It's not terror or dread. It's awe. And I've seen some things that have left me in awe. I've seen the beauty of mountains and the vastness of the ocean and the splendor of the night sky filled with stars. All of God's handiwork. And those things at times in life have literally moved me to tears. I saw my daughters being born and I've watched loved ones pass into eternity. And in those moments, I feel small and awestruck. And all those things are a gift from God. But they're temporary things, things that occur during seasons, times in life. But one day, if we have faith in Christ, the wrapping will come off the package And we'll receive the gift that's coming if we have faith. And the gift is God Himself. We'll say goodbye to the temporary and find ourselves in the company of the eternal. And then we'll understand that all of this life, all we earn, every season, every heartache, every pain, every party, every joy, is just a breath. I'm going to ask our musicians, uh, Daniel and Luke, to come. David Gibson wrote, We use our time to seek satisfaction rather than living in the times God has given and receiving satisfaction from Him as a gift. Satisfaction comes when you realize He is sovereign and He is good. He is in control of the seasons of your life and they come from His good and wise hands. We don't like walking through valleys, he wrote. We only want to be on mountaintops. But even our seasons of sorrow and despair come from his fatherly care. God will bring every single moment of every single season of your life into his eternal presence and put right what has gone wrong. John Calvin said it this way. Establish your complete happiness in God. So enjoy life and enjoy God. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. At the end of the matter, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let's pray. Father, help us to see even in our darkest times of life that you use those moments to draw us to you to help us to know you and depend on you and to see your love at work. 
Help us to feel joy in times of failure and grieving and loss and humility in times of success and happiness. Acknowledging in good times and bad times that you are God and you are sovereign. You're in control. When we're afraid of times that come, comfort us. Help us to remember in your power and your authority, our sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. And there's coming an unending time where there's no more loss, no more death, no more sickness, no more war, no more pain. A time when everything sad comes untrue. And it's coming because of Christ on the cross. God, help us to enjoy life and to enjoy you. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.